Section 35 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 35, Battle of Agincourt, A.D. 1415, by James Guernet. Battle of Agincourt, English Conquest of France, A.D. 1415 to 1420, James Garnet. King Henry V of England, son of Henry IV, was born in 1387, and two years later was made Prince of Wales. In 1401 through 1408, he was engaged against the Welsh rebels under Owen Glendower, and in 1410 became captain of Calais. His youthful period was represented, probably with much exaggeration, to which Shakespeare in Henry IV contributed, as full of wild and dissolute conduct. But as king, he was distinguished for his courage, ability, and enterprise. Henry was crowned in 1413, about 75 years after the beginning of the Hundred Years' War between England and France, which arose from the claim of Edward III to the French throne. For some years, a feud had been raging in France between the houses of Burgundy and Orleans, the rival parties being known as Burgundians and Armagnacs. Led by Simonet Camboche, a butcher, adherents of the Armagnacs rose with great fury against the Burgundians. This was in the first year of Henry's reign, and to him and other rulers, Charles the Sixth of France appealed in order to prevent them from aiding the outbreak, which was soon quelled by the princes of the blood and the University of Paris. Order in France was restored by the Duke of Orleans, and the Duke of Burgundy withdrew to Flanders. But war between the two factions was soon after renewed, and both sides sought the alliance of England. In these contentions and appeals for his interference, Henry saw an opportunity for pressing his designs to recover what he claimed as the French inheritance of his predecessors. In 1414, as the heir of Isabella, mother of his great-grandfather Edward, he formally demanded the crown of France. The French princes refused to consider his claim. Henry modified his demands, but after several months of negotiation, with no promise of success, he prepared for a renewal of the ancient war. The claim made by Edward III to the French crown had been questionable enough. That of Henry was certainly most unreasonable. Edward had maintained that though the Salique law which governed the succession in France excluded females from the throne, it did not exclude their male descendants. On this theory, Edward himself was doubtless the true heir to the French monarchy. But even admitting the claims of Edward, his rights had certainly not descended to Henry V, seeing that even in England neither he nor his father was true to the throne by lineal right. 
the war with france however was sure to be popular with his subjects and the weakness of that country from civil discord seemed a favorable opportunity for urging the most extreme pretensions to give a show of fairness and moderation the english ambassadors at paris lessened their demands more than once and appeared willing for some time to renew negotiations after their terms had been rejected but in the end they still insisted on a claim which in point of equity was altogether preposterous and rejected the compromise which would have put henry in possession of the whole of guienne and given him the hand of the french king's daughter catherine with a marriage portion of eight hundred thousand crowns meanwhile henry was making active preparations for war and at the same time carried on secret negotiations with the duke of burgundy trusting to have him for an ally in the invasion of france at length in the summer of fourteen fifteen the king had collected an army and was ready to embark at southampton but on the eve of his departure a conspiracy was discovered the object of which was to dethrone the king and set aside the house of lancaster the conspirators were richard earl of cambridge henry lord scrope of masham and a knight of northumberland named sir thomas gray the earl of cambridge was the king's cousin german and had been recently raised to that dignity by henry himself the lord scrope was to all appearance the king's most intimate friend and counsellor the design seems to have been formed upon the model of similar projects in the preceding reign richard the second was to be proclaimed once more as if he had been still alive but the real intention was to procure the crown for edmund mortimer earl of march the true heir of richard whom henry the fourth had set aside at the same time the earl of march himself seems hardly to have countenanced the attempt but the earl of cambridge who had married his sister wished doubtless to secure the succession for his son richard as the earl of march had no children evidently it was the impression of some persons that the house of lancaster was not even yet firmly seated upon the throne perhaps it was not even yet apparent that the young man who had so recently been a gamesome reveller was capable of ruling with a firm hand a king but all doubt on this point was soon terminated the commissioners were tried by a commission hastily issued and were summarily condemned and put to death the earl of march it was said revealed the plot to the king sat as one of the judges of his two brother peers and was taken into the king's favour the earl of cambridge made a confession of his guilt lord scrope though he repudiated the imputation of disloyalty admitted having had a guilty knowledge of the plot which he said it had been his purpose to defeat the one nobleman in consideration of his royal blood was simply beheaded the other was drawn and quartered we hear of no more attempts of the kind during henry's reign with a fleet of one thousand five hundred sail henry crossed the sea and landed without opposition at chef de corps near harfleur at the mouth of the seine 
the force that he brought with him was about thirty thousand men and he immediately employed it in laying siege to harfleur the place was strong so far as walls and bulwarks could make it but it was not well victualled and after five weeks siege it was obliged to capitulate but the forces of the besieged were thinned by disease as well as actual fighting dysentery had broken out in camp and though it was only september they suffered bitterly from the coldness of the nights so that when the town had been won and garrisoned the force available for further operations amounted to less than half the original strength of the invading army under the circumstances it was hopeless to expect to do much before the winter set in and many counselled the king to return to england but henry could not tolerate the idea of retreat or even of apparent inaction he sent a challenge to the dauphin offering to refer their differences to single combat and when no notice was taken of this proposal he determined to cut his way if possible through the country to calais along with the remainder of his forces it was a difficult and hazardous march hunger dysentery and fever had already reduced the little band to less than nine thousand men or as good authorities say to little more than six thousand the country people were unfriendly their supplies were cut off on all sides and the scanty stock of provisions with which they set out was soon exhausted for want of bread many were driven to feed on nuts while the enemy harassed them upon the way and broke down the bridges in advance of them on one or two occasions having repulsed an attack from a garrison town henry demanded and obtained from the governor a safe conduct and a certain quantity of bread and wine under threat of setting fire to the place if refused in this manner he and his army gradually approached the river somme at blanchetache where there was a ford by which king edward the third had crossed before the battle of crecy but while yet some distance from it they received information from a prisoner that the ford was guarded by six thousand fighting men and though the intelligence was untrue it deterred him from attempting the passage they accordingly turned to the right and went up the river as far as amiens where they were still unable to cross till after following the course of the river about fifty miles farther they fortunately came upon an undefended ford and passed over before their enemies were aware hitherto their progress had not been without adventures and skirmishes in many places but the main army of the french only overtook them when they had arrived within about forty-five miles of calais on the night of october twenty fourth they were posted at the village maisoncelles with an enemy before them five or six times their number who had resolved to stop their further progress both sides prepared for battle on the following morning the english besides being so much inferior in numbers were wasted by disease and famine while their adversaries were fresh and vigorous with a plentiful commissariat but the latter were overconfident they spent the evening in dice-playing and making wagers about the prisoners they should take while the english on the contrary confessed themselves and received the sacrament 
Heavy rain fell during the night, from which both armies suffered, but Henry availed himself of a brief period of moonlight to have the ground thoroughly surveyed. His position was an admirable one. His forces occupied a narrow field hemmed in on either side by hedges and thickets, so that they could only be attacked in front, and were in no fear of being surrounded. Early on the following morning, Henry arose and heard mass, but the two armies stood facing each other for some hours, each waiting for the other to begin. The English archers were drawn up in front in form of a wedge, and each man was provided with a stake, shod with iron at both ends, which being fixed into the ground before him, the whole line formed a kind of hedge, bristling with sharp points, to defend them from being ridden down by the enemy's cavalry. At length, however, Henry gave orders to commence the attack, and the archers advanced, leaving their stakes behind them fixed in the ground. The French cavalry on either side endeavored to close them in, but were soon obliged to retire before the thick showers of arrows poured in upon them, which destroyed four-fifths of their numbers. Their horses then became unmanageable, being plagued with a multitude of wounds, and the whole army was thrown into confusion. Never was a more brilliant victory won against more overwhelming odds. One sad piece of cruelty alone tarnished the glory of that day's action, but it seems to have been dictated by fear as a means of self-preservation. After the enemy had been completely routed in front and a multitude of prisoners taken, the king, hearing that some detachments had got round to his rear and were endeavouring to plunder his baggage, gave orders to the whole army to put their prisoners to death. The order was executed in the most relentless fashion. One or two distinguished prisoners afterward were taken from under heaps of slain, among whom were the Dukes of Orleans and Bourbon. Altogether, the slaughter of the French was enormous. There is a general agreement that it was upward of 10,000 men, and among them were the flower of the French nobility. That of the English was disproportionately small. Their own writers reckon it was not more than 100 altogether, some absurdly stating it as low as 20 or 30, while the French authorities estimate it variously from 300 to 1,600. Henry called his victory the Battle of Agincourt from the name of a neighboring castle. The army proceeded in excellent order to Calais, where they were triumphantly received, and after resting there a while, recrossed to England. The news of such a splendid victory caused them to be welcomed with an enthusiasm that knew no bounds. At Dover, the people rushed into the sea to meet the conquerors, and carried the king in their arms in triumph from his vessel to the shore. From thence to London, his progress was like one continued triumphal procession, and the capital itself received him with every demonstration of joy. The progress of the English arms in France did not, for a long time, induce the rival factions in that country to suspend the civil war among themselves. But at length, some feeble efforts were made toward a reconciliation. 
the council of constance having healed the divisions in the church by the election of martin v as pope in place of the three rival popes deposed the new pontiff dispatched two cardinals to france to aid in this important object by their mediation a treaty was concluded between the queen the duke of burgundy and the dauphin but it was no sooner published than the count of armagnac and his partisans made a vehement protest against it and accused of treason all who had promoted it on this paris rose in anger took part with the burgundians fell upon all the leading armagnacs put them in prison and destroyed their houses the dauphin was only saved by one of armagnac's principal adherents tanagui du chatel who carried him to the bastille the bastille however was a few days after stormed by the populace and du chatel was forced to withdraw his charge to milan the armagnac party except those in prison were entirely driven out of paris but even this did not satisfy the rage of the multitude riots continued from day to day and a report being spread that the king was willing to ransom the captives the people broke open the prisons and massacred every one of the prisoners the count of armagnac his chancellor and several bishops and officers of state were the principal victims but no one man or woman was spared state prisoners criminals and debtors even women great with child perished in this indiscriminate slaughter almost the whole of normandy was by this time in possession of the english but rouen the capital of the duchy still held out it was a large city strongly fortified but henry closed it in on every side until it was reduced to capitulate by hunger at the beginning of the siege the authorities took measures to expel the destitute class of the inhabitants and several thousands of poor people were thus thrown into the hands of the besiegers who endeavoured to drive them back into the town but the gates being absolutely shut against them they remained between the walls and the trenches pitifully crying for help and perishing for want of food and shelter until on christmas day when the siege had continued nearly five months henry ordered food to be distributed to them in the honor of christ's nativity those within the town meanwhile were reduced to no less extremities enormous prices were given for bread and even for the bodies of dogs cats and rats the garrison at length were induced to offer terms but henry for some time insisted on their surrendering at discretion hearing however that a desperate project was entertained of undermining the wall and suddenly rushing out upon the besiegers he consented to grant them conditions and the city capitulated on january nineteenth the few places that remained unconquered in normandy then opened their gates to henry others in maine and the isle of france did the same and the english troops entered picardy on a further career of conquest both of the rival factions were now seriously anxious to stop the progress of the english either by coming at once to terms with henry or by uniting together against him and each in turn first tried the former course the dauphin offered to treat with the king of england 
but henry demanding the whole of those large possessions in the north and south of france which had been secured to edward the third by the treaty of bretigny he felt that it was impossible to prolong the negotiation the duke of burgundy then arranged a personal interview at moulins between henry on the one side and himself and the french queen on behalf of charles at which terms of peace were to be adjusted the queen brought with her the princess catherine her daughter whose hand henry himself had formerly demanded as one of the conditions on which he would have consented to forbear from invading france it was now hoped that if he would take her in marriage he would moderate his other demands but henry for his part was altogether unyielding he insisted on the terms of the treaty of bretigny and on keeping his own conquests besides with anjou maine touraine and the sovereignty over brittany demands so exorbitant the duke of burgundy did not dare to accept and as a last resource he and the dauphin agreed to be reconciled and to unite in defence of their country against the enemy they held a personal interview embraced each other and signed a treaty by which they promised each to love the other as a brother and to offer a joint resistance to the invaders a further meeting was arranged to take place about seven weeks later to complete matters and to consider their future policy france was delighted that the prospect of internal harmony and the hope of deliverance from her enemies but at the second interview an event occurred which marred all her prospects once more the meeting had been appointed to take place at montreau where the river yonne falls into the seine the duke remembering doubtless how he had perfidiously murdered the duke of orleans allowed the day originally appointed to pass by and came to the place at last after considerable misgivings which appear to have been overcome by the exhortations of treacherous friends when he arrived he found a place railed in with barriers for the meeting he nevertheless advanced accompanied by ten attendants and being told that the dauphin waited for him he came within the barriers which were immediately closed behind him the dauphin was accompanied by one or two gentlemen among whom was his devoted servant Tanneguy du chateau who had saved him from the parisian massacre this Tanneguy had been formerly a servant of louis duke of orleans whose murder he had been eagerly seeking an opportunity to revenge and as the duke of burgundy knelt before the dauphin he struck him a violent blow on the head with a battle-axe the attack was immediately followed up by two or three others who before the duke was able to draw his sword had closed in around him and dispatched him with a multitude of wounds the effect of this crime was what might have been anticipated nothing could have been more favourable to the aggressive designs of henry or more ruinous to the party of the dauphin with whose complicity it had been too evidently committed philip the son and heir of the murdered duke of burgundy at once sought means to revenge his father's death the people of paris became more than ever enraged against the armagnacs and entered into negotiations with the king of england 
The new duke, Philip, and Queen Isabel did the same, the latter being no less eager than the former for the punishment of her own son. Within less than three months they made up their minds to waive every scruple as to the acceptance of Henry's most exorbitant demands. He was to have the Princess Catherine in marriage, and the Dauphin, being disinherited, to succeed to the crown of France on her father's death. He was also to be regent during King Charles's life, and all who held honors or offices of any kind in France were at once to swear allegiance to him as their future sovereign. Henry, for his part, was to use his utmost power to reduce to obedience those towns and places within the realm which adhered to the Dauphin or the Armagnacs. A treaty on this basis was at length concluded at Troyes in Champagne on May 21, 1420, and on Trinity Sunday, June 2nd, Henry was married to the Princess Catherine. Shortly afterward, the treaty was formally registered by the states of the realm at Paris, when the Dauphin was condemned and attainted as guilty of the murder of the Duke of Burgundy and declared incapable of succeeding to the crown. But the state of affairs left Henry no time for honeymoon festivities. On the Tuesday after his wedding, he again put himself at the head of his army and marched with Philip of Burgundy to lay siege to Saint, which in a few days capitulated. Montreux and Moulin were next besieged in succession, and each, after some resistance, was compelled to surrender. The latter siege lasted nearly four months, and during its continuance Henry fought a single combat with the governor in the mines, each combatant having his visor down and being unknown to the other. The governor's name was Barbasson, and he was one of those accused of complicity in the murder of the Duke of Orleans. But in consequence of this incident, Henry saved him from the capital punishment which he would have otherwise incurred on his capture. Toward the end of the year, Henry entered Paris in triumph with the French king and the Duke of Burgundy. He there kept Christmas, and shortly afterward removed with his queen into Normandy on his return into England. He held a parliament at Rouen to confirm his authority in the duchy, after which he passed through Picardy and Calais, and crossing the sea, came by Dover and Canterbury to London. By his own subjects, and especially in the capital, he and his bride were received with profuse demonstrations of joy. The queen was crowned at Westminster with great magnificence, and afterward Henry went a progress with her through the country, making pilgrimages to several of the more famous shrines in England. But while he was thus employed, a great calamity befell the English power in France, which, when the news arrived in England, made it apparent that the king's presence was again much needed across the channel. His brother, the Duke of Clarence, whom he had left as his lieutenant, was defeated and slain at Bauge in Anjou by an army of French and Scots, a number of English noblemen being also slain or taken prisoners. This was the first important advantage the Dauphin had gained, and the credit of the victory was mainly due to his Scotch allies. For the Duke of Albany, 
who was regent of scotland though it is commonly supposed that he was unwilling to give needless offence to england lest henry should terminate his power by setting the scotch king at liberty had been compelled by the general sympathy of the scots with france to send a force under his son the earl of bouchon to serve against the english the service which they did in that battle was so great that the earl of bouchon was created by the dauphin constable of france again henry crossed the sea with a new army having borrowed large sums for the expenses of the expedition before he left england he made a private treaty with his prisoner king james of scotland promising to let him return to his country after the campaign in france on certain specified conditions among which it was agreed that he should take the command of a body of troops in aid of the english james had accompanied him in his last campaign and henry had endeavoured to make use of his authority to forbid the scots in france from taking part in the war but they had refused to acknowledge themselves bound to a king who was a captive by this agreement however henry obtained real assistance and co-operation from his prisoner whom he employed in concert with the duke of gloucester to the siege of Dreux, which very soon surrendered he himself meanwhile marched toward the loire to meet the dauphin and took beaugency then returning northward first reduced Vineve on the yon and afterward laid siege to meux on the marne the latter place held out for seven months and while henry lay before it he received intelligence that his queen had borne him a son at windsor who was christened henry the city of meux surrendered on may tenth fourteen twenty two the governor a man who had been guilty of great cruelties was beheaded and his head and body were suspended from a tree on which he himself had caused a number of people to be hanged as adherents to the duke of burgundy henry was now master of the greater part of the north of france and his queen came over from england to join him with reinforcements under his brother the duke of bedford but he was not permitted to rest for the dauphin having taken from his ally the duke of burgundy the town of la chartre on the loire proceeded to lay siege to cosny and philip having applied to henry for assistance he sent forward the duke of bedford with his army intending shortly to follow himself this demonstration was sufficient the dauphin felt he was too weak to contend with the united english and burgundian forces and he withdrew from the siege henry however was disabled from joining the army by a severe attack of dysentery and though he had at first hoped that he might be carried in a litter to headquarters he soon found that his illness was far too serious to permit him to carry out his intention he was accordingly conveyed back to vincennes near paris where he grew so rapidly worse that it was evident his end was near in a few brief words to those about him he declared his will touching the government of england and france after his death until his infant son should be of age the regency of france he committed to the duke of bedford in case it should be declined by the duke of burgundy 
that of England he gave to his other brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. To his two uncles, Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, and Thomas Beaufort, Duke of Exeter, he entrusted the guardianship of his child. He besought all parties to maintain the alliance with Burgundy and never release the Duke of Orleans and the other prisoners of Agincourt during his son's minority. Having given these instructions, he expired on the last day of August, 1422. His death was bewailed both in England and France with no ordinary regret. The great achievements of his reign made him naturally a popular hero, nor was the regard felt for his memory diminished when, under the feeble reign of his son, all that he had gained was irrecoverably lost again, so that nothing remained of all his conquests except the story of how they had been won. Those past glories, indeed, must have seemed all the brighter when contrasted with a present which knew but disaster abroad and civil dissension at home. The early death of Henry also contributed to the popular estimate of his greatness. It was seen that in a very few years he had subdued a large part of the territory of France. It was not seen that in the nature of things this advantage could not be maintained, and that even the greatest military talents would not have succeeded in preserving the English conquests. Nor can it be said that Henry's success, extraordinary as it was, was altogether owing to his own abilities. That he exhibited great qualities as a general cannot be denied, but these would have availed him little if the rival factions in France had not been far more bitterly opposed to each other than to him. Indeed, it is difficult, after all, to justify, even as a matter of policy, his interference in French affairs, except as a means of diverting public attention from the fact that he inherited from his father but an indifferent title even to the throne of England. And though success attended his efforts beyond all expectation, he most willfully endangered the safety not only of himself, but of his gallant army, when he determined to march with reduced forces through the enemy's country from Harfleur to Calais. It was a rashness, nothing less than culpable, but in his own interests, rashness was good policy. Unless he could succeed in desperate enterprises against tremendous odds, and so make himself a military hero and a favorite of the multitude, his throne was insecure. He succeeded, but it was only by staking everything upon the venture, his own safety and that of his army, which, if the French had exercised but a little more discretion, would inevitably have been cut to pieces or made prisoners to a man. End of section 35